Welcome to the Conversatorios. Conversatorios are curated conversations from the Aluna Theater archives. This conversatorio is going to be a bit different than previous episodes. In this episode, we want to explore translation and adaptation of language in a 2021 context. So we invited Paula Zelaya Cervantes to join us. Paula did the translation and adaptation of Aluna's recent studio series project, Clean in English, or Limpia in Español. We invited her to reflect with us on material from the Aluna archives. In this episode, Paula reflects on two case studies of contemporary multilingual theater, Aluna's 2016 Interpretation Lab and her recent translation process with Clean. We started with Aluna's archives from January 2016 and listened to a panel of artists and scholars after an open rehearsal of Aluna's Interpretation Lab. The Interpretation Lab was a year and a half long experimentation in how to break the barriers of language through image, action, technology, and translation. Aluna's theater theme of bilingual theater makers worked on stage in English and Spanish to explore new approaches to dramatic translation and to test the possibilities of creating a translingual theater. First on the panel, we heard from Maria Constanza Guzman, a translator, translation scholar, and associate professor in the School of Translation and the Department of Hispanic Studies at Glendon College, York University. Living this illusion that language is just this utopian space of, uh, that we have full control of. But no, language is never that, and language is in writing and dealing with texts is more often than not this completely frustrating experience. I love her. (laughs) It's so true. It is a frustrating experience. Yeah. It is really, really true. It's amazing. Yeah. As a translator, are you ever satisfied? I do get to a point where I... I'm satisfied because otherwise I can't move on. <laughs> like I, I can look at the thing and say, okay, I'm happy with this. But while you're translating, it is really, really not scary, but kind of like, it's not a really comfortable experience because of course things don't like, things don't like fit into each other like you would want them to. And then the whole point is that they don't. Um, but it is a frustrating and kind of like uncomfortable situation where you're trying to get these beautiful words and, in, in, in one language and turn them into beautiful words in another language and and you realize how like how many gray areas there are in the language you're trying to um, pour the first language into um so yeah it, it can be a little frustrating and, and of course we all do want this utopian thing where like oh i got the exact meaning and sometimes kind of like manage to do it but most of the time you don't um, the funny thing is you, you, the, the translation in itself becomes a thing by itself, right? So it doesn't have to be a carbon copy of the first. And that's the whole point. The whole point is that it works in its own language and, and tries to keep lots of the things from, from the original piece, but it's never going to be the same. And you kind of have to come, uh, like, I don't know, make peace with that. Um, it's hard. It is. And frustrating. I like, I like that word that she used. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's listen to the next clip. It, the, the answers don't come from the text. The text is just sort of the pretext. Hmm. So where do the answers come from? And, 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 and when, when I work with my students, we often read theater 
in order to learn how to translate narrative mm -hmm. and to translate poetry in particular, because one of the key notions is voice, where it's the voice that's going to give you the text. It's not the text that gives you the text. So there's also this is talking about sort of the, the notions about translation that, that what you're doing exposes us to, to as, as, as very limited. It, it's not a textual exercise. That's right. it is a te it's an exercise that has many layers, many sources and many layers of meaning. And some of these sources are experiential, performative, identitarian, somatic. There are all kinds of, of, of sources for that meaning, right? That's interesting. <laughs> I don't know if I agree that it's not about the text because for me it is like you're you're listening to a playwright who's a like a living or dead person but was a person at some point so you, you definitely have to listen to the text but what i think she's talking about is it's not just the text and yeah there's so many more layers and yeah the idea about voice is really important figuring out who's speaking especially in theater where you have like four or five different characters or one if it's if it's a, a one one person show um but yeah, of course, you have to try to find how that person speaks and then how they would speak in, in, in Spanish or in English, depending on what you're translating, translating into. But I do, I do rely a lot on the text. Like it's kind of like the, the place where I'm, I'm, that's the only thing that I do have that I know I, I'm like my starting place. Um, so I wouldn't, I would never say that it's not about the text. It's partly about the text. And then the other part is just everything else you have in your toolkit, in your language toolkit. Next from the panel, we hear from Annika Andre Barrett. Annika is a multilingual communication facilitator and a dedicated language professional with over 12 years in medical, legal, and community interpreting. I don't have theater backgrounds, but I, I am aware of how, my, how many sensations I go through while I'm interpreting because we are vicariously, you know, we speak in I, we speak in first person, and that's, that's the first rule of interpreting. And I felt like it was the experience of the voice and body movement which facilitated the interpreting, whereas sticking to the paper, like you say, you always have to return to the tangible or the tactile, the form, uh, but that um, the paper constrained me. And I, that's why I never wanted to go into translation, to be honest. <laughs> because I felt that that was something that would kind of lock me into this analysis paralysis or something. Uh, that's also how my, my own personality. But um, I think the live dynamic act of interpreting and walking and moving and having someone whisper those words uh, was something that really speaks to the experience of any person that is living in two or more languages and has that native other language in the context of Canadian context and is always having to interpret for themselves, uh, you know, but it's, it's uh, silent interpreting in their mind. So I really felt that frustration with you, uh, that kind of tension. That is crazy, like that the stakes are so much higher for someone who's interpreting and especially for like difficult cases I would I could never do that the whole point for me is that it's not real <laughs> um, yeah it's fiction right and that's like why it can be artistic and poetic and it like it's important but it doesn't really matter or kill anyone if you don't get one word right right um but for, like that kind of work it's really interesting that for her it's analysis paralysis like she wanted to be the kind of live and, and not have time to even consider like what were they 
thinking. It's most more like in, in the present moment. Whereas kind of like the whole point of translating, literary translation is kind of like, you can spend days thinking about that one phrase, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of the appeal to me, um, just diving into one language and, and spending a long time in it. Uh, interpreting is scary. Yeah. I've done it a couple of times, but never for important things. So Conchita Leon, when she came with her show, we had subtitles, but then in one part she was like, I don't want subtitles for this. Monica, you interpret with me in that show. No. Like every show, because I want to change things. So Monica, you're just going to come to the show. Because I was her artist liaison. I wasn't like an artist in the in the lineup. I was just the artist liaison. And I'm like, okay. So every show I will step at one point with her with a microphone and she will be like this. And it was a, a no, I don't know if it's a baptism. Yeah, baptism. So we will, I will interpret whatever she will say because she will change things. But it was, I will act it out more than trying to interpret because I, some words I was like, oh my God. Yeah. And I will look at the audience and ask people, right? Right? And people will be like, <laughs> yeah. like some people will join in. Because when I will do like, and this is what it means. And, and I will look and people will be like. That is so terrifying, Monica. It was great. I got so much <laughs> What play was it? Of Conchis? Um, Manantial del Corazón. Wow. Yeah. It must have been so terrifying. Or people who do hear um, uh, Mexican sign language translations. And it's really common in theater. Not really common, but a lot of people in the theater community try to do it. And it seems so insane to me. And they're so fast. Um, it, it's crazy. And this, these whole like, whole like auditoriums filled with with deaf people and and this in, interpreting going on at the same time like they do get rehearsals beforehand but it, it seems like so scary to me um just like being alive I guess I'm not an actor so that liveness scares me to be honest that's fair I could never I could never do that next from the panel we heard from Elena Basile Elena is a poet, artist, translation scholar, and professor at the University of Toronto's Bonham Center for Sexual Diversity Studies. Translation is a regulated transformation of meaning uh, that uh, on one level, um, uh, it's ideally supposed to convey something that is inaccessible uh, otherwise to another speaking community, right? Uh, But that transformation has something lost and something gained, but something constantly resituated, resituated. Uh, I was actually quite struck because another question we can ask then it's about actually the content of the text itself and uh, what is it what what's what's what what wants to be passed on in this context and how easily things or how non easily things can be resituated in uh, uh, the urban environment of Toronto Canada what what does then the passage into English so. Banal example, when I heard the phrase stolen children, I wasn't thinking of the Americas. I was thinking of Canada. I was thinking of residential schools. So you get that resituating of something that possibly in the authority of the Spanish text was not there or was another historical um, reference. But then the place, the space of that language enactment, that languaging that's happening, opens up, you know, new, so that the text, that there's a web, the text is part of the web of potentials that, you know, can take root or not, or travel. 
the advantage of the written thing is that, you know, it kind of stays the same because it can circulate. And then it's there, you know, and then you can go back to it. I like her. She's really cool. I love this idea of resituating because it's true. We want to think of it as kind of like you have one card and you kind of just flip it and that's like the other language and it's not really, it's going through you and then pouring out of you. Uh, a lot of the time it feels like you're finding equivalence, but most of the time, especially for clean, um, that was really interesting just how, like how few equivalents I could find just because of the way Christine writes. Um, and because I was translating a Mexican, which I rarely get to do. I usually have to like convert a American or Canadian or um, from wherever character into a Mexican and, and turn them into, if, if I'm adapting or just translating, if I'm just translating. And with Adriana, I was giving a Mexican her Mexican voice, which was really weird and interesting. I'd never done that before. Um, but it, it did feel like resituating, placing her in a different place, not turning her into, into something else. Um, I really like what she said as well about, I wrote it down, regulated transformation of meaning. It's kind of both really rigid and academic and poetic <laughs> at the same yeah. time. Um, of regulated transformation of meaning. It's true, you're not, you're not, you're never gonna end up with the same thing. So it, you are transforming whatever you're touching. Um, a lot of the time you forget that, that, that you're not actually finding equivalence, but you're finding like another way of expressing that same thing in a different language. Um, and that must be really interesting in languages that are really, really, really different from each other because there are languages that are completely different. English and Spanish are pretty, especially Mexican Spanish is pretty like, because we're so close to the US. Um, it feels like it, you can even grab some of the words in English and kind of try to make them work in Spanish and a lot of Spanish speakers here would understand. So it doesn't feel like such a long way uh, to go between languages, but I feel like languages are completely different that would be even a more disorienting and, and cool experience. Um, yeah, I like, I like her terms. They're really interesting languaging. I like that. <laughs> then we heard from Annika Andre Barrett again. Yeah, in the moment. Uh, but um, just that we're not talking about, you mentioned before that the audience, there's this, this, there's this sort of uh, this ping-ponging of, of meaning and interpretation and input and output happening and it's not nothing is sequential though the words are from beginning to end they happen in the same order in each reading but at the same time you know when you it's it's a little deceiving that interpreters and translators say i am a a to b translator or a to b interpreter they always frame it in that content in that in that form but uh really it's it's like you have uh, I use the, the metaphor ping pong. It's like a, you have a messy ping pong game happening. And to, to be uh, the audience to that is to, to see how much energy is taken up. It's like this psychic energy constantly being used in this engagement between languages. So. I feel that must be especially true for, for live interpretation because you see that back and forth and you can see the struggle sometimes. Like it's really interesting to see interpreters um, or like in like big events where you can see like there's a little booth where interpreters sit and you can just feel like the tension streaming out from there. Um, but it is true that it's not A to B. Like a lot of the time I'll start translating something and then as I, I move through the text, I'll realize that certain things that I used before don't really work. And it's kind of like, like the, the thing itself informing 
uh, its own translation as you go along uh, and you come up with better words or you, you get a better sense of like the cadence of the text or the, the characters. And then suddenly what you did at the beginning, this happens playwriting as well. You start off with something and then you realize that's not the right beginning um, because the rest of the play has already happened. And then now you, now you know what's perfect for the start. But it happens in translation too, so yeah, ping-ponging, messy ping-pong. <laughs> then we had some specific questions about clean. Clean is a co-production and development between New World Theatre in Vancouver and Aluna Theatre in Toronto. Written by Christine Quintana, with translation and adaptation by Paula, our guest here. How did you approach cultural translation with Clean? Um, can you explain a bit more what you mean by cultural translation? So I can, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, because the story of Clean particularly happens in an encounter between different cultures. Right. Uh, and, and translating that text to the other language like for example having the mexican characters speak spanish but all yucatan spanish but also english uh you're translating so much more than just the words and then having right. that canadian character speak english in that mexican context and then also then speak spanish there's like more than the words that are being you're you, you, the whole team also has a vision of the cultures the court you and Christine do so yeah right so the funny thing is that um Christine had a pretty good sense of like culturally what her character's context was so it wasn't like she wrote a Canadian character that I then turned into Mexican the character was already Mexican she was only speaking in English of course there were some things that I, I talked to Christine about that I was like okay so maybe this isn't, this isn't quite accurate or we had a conversation about houses in, in Mexico and how they wouldn't have like an open backyard you would never have that um, in certain places, maybe, but in general, you would never have like this open backyard that you can just see the street from because um, like, we're all hiding behind big gates um, or smaller ones, depending. So we had a conversation about that kind of thing. But the interesting part is that I was, I did feel like I wasn't pouring like culture into a certain culture into the character, more like just giving her the words to be what she already was. Um, yeah, the thing is, like, Spanish is my first language, so it doesn't feel like there was, um, she is a, a person from a different state, right? I'm from Mexico City, so that, that was part of, like, my, my research was trying to get that part of it was um, this cultural side of, okay, so how would people from there? I actually asked Conchi to um, ask some of her friends to read, um, uh, like, a, a fragment from, from the play and then tell me if they felt it was okay, and then so I could hear as well, like, their their accent and, and, and the rhythm. Um, so we did do that. So I feel like the cultural part of it was mostly trying to get her into that context of Chetumal and that area. Um, because Spanish to me, Spanish to me is Mexico, like it's Mexican. Um, I can't kind of like separate it because that's just like the, the, the thing that I speak is Mexican Spanish. Um, but I did go into, for example, um, asking Conchi a few words that they might use in the area or um, researching certain dishes that might be super common in the area, that kind of thing we, we did go through. Um, and Christine had a, a good sense of uh, certain words and, and, and situations that might happen because she, her dad um, worked at a hotel, just like the character did um, at some point in his life. She visited him a couple of times and, and so she had that kind of like 
um, perspective into into that that world. So that was helpful. It was kind of like her um, her ideas and her cultural um, kind of ideas of what would happen to the character and, and the way she would speak, and then kind of like my interpretation of it as well coming together. Um, so yeah, it was mostly giving this Mexican character a Mexican voice and finding out what would feel more true to that area and, and, that, and the patterns of speech in the area, which was tricky. It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that because it's like, yes, because when you translate it to English, how do you keep the, the como Yucatan accent? Right. Yeah, that's why I think it's like, it's so, I don't know how, yeah, to approach that. How would you approach that? That's also like one of the things that, it's tricky for, for me to, it was tricky for me to know because it also depended on the actor, right? Um, and and um, I think one of the most important things for that play is finding an actor who, who has like a good sense of, of that area or at least that accent because it is really distinctive sometimes. Mm -hmm. Some of the clips that Conchi sent me were pretty like, the accents were really strong in some of them. And some of them were really, really like, especially the younger people had like a, a way lighter um, accent. So that made it easier as well for, um, for them to find a, a Adriana because we found out that it wasn't really as um, strong as we thought that it, it could be. Um, it's especially for younger younger generations. Um, but yeah, the, the accent is, itself is kind of like this work that you do with the actor, um, um, which is, is tricky, but because it is a, an interesting accent, it's beautiful. Um, and not a lot of people know about it outside of Mexico, right? Oh, totally, totally. I think one of the interesting things about this this whole process and the show in particular is that it's trying to be very specific. It is. Like, yeah, like Mexico has a bunch of different states and they're all very different. And this is not just set in Mexico, this is set in Yucatan, in Chetumal and in Cancun. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And in the hotel business, right? Industry, which is, it, it just has so many different accents that you would hear um, in that one setting because it is like a melting pot where you, lots of people who would never interact with each other do come into, into contact yeah. um, in a hotel. The next question is, how did you approach making a trilingual play? Was there a scene in particular that was challenging to navigate in both languages? So I saw it as trilingual in the way in the way that we were doing the workshops, like Spanish, English, Spanish, English. Okay. Oh, also, I see. How I saw it also. As yeah, so. true. Because you do have like the monologues in English and the monologues in Spanish, and then those scenes where they, they yeah, that is mm. true. It does feel like three different areas of, especially because of Adriana's um, English. It was funny because when she, when before she was translated into Spanish, her English was this beautiful, flowy, you know, like Christine's um, writing, and then when they. We, they had the scenes in, in Spanish and English. Of course, your English seemed less um, less fluent and, 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 and easygoing. And it just felt weird because to me, Adriana is really eloquent, right? Um, so it was interesting to see that kind of how it was represented in English, that her first language wasn't English, even though we were, we were reading these whole beautiful uh, monologues in, in, in English that were um, for um, Adriana's, right? But yeah, it does feel like three different areas in, in the translation. Um, was there a scene in particular that was challenging to navigate in both languages? 
Um, there were a couple, there was one scene in particular, there were these um, dream sequences. And of course, language becomes really poetic. And to be honest, most of the plays that I've translated are really like contemporary theater where you have like dialogue and it's really clear what people are saying. And here we had these almost like stream of consciousness um, passages where not like even in English, Christine couldn't quite explain what was going on in her head, which is really cool because they're beautiful. And in English, you kind of get a sense of what the characters are doing or feeling or saying. But then when you're trying to like pick the actual words to turn into another language, you have to make a choice. Um, because in English, this one word has three different meanings, whereas in Spanish, you have to pick one of the three meanings. Otherwise, like, because it's a three, it would have to be three different words and you can't do that. So those passages are really, really difficult to try to render in Spanish because you have to kind of pin them down in English first and see like, okay, yeah, this is beautiful, but what are, like, what is actually happening? And then it feels really sad because you lose some of that. So then how do you kind of like grab a sense from that and then turn it back into poetic and kind of um, an attainable thing again without it be being, um, like without it being completely uh, obscure, right? So that was really hard. And, and it, it's kind of sad because you feel like you're losing something. Um, so it was this back and forth conversation over WhatsApp with Christine about, okay, so like, do you want this to um, stay in Spanish or do you want, which of the five meanings of this do you want translated? Um, that, was, that was really, really, really tr challenging and tricky. Even trying to understand what it was in English um, to begin with because it was so poetic. So that, that was uh, a challenge. Those, those scenes where the two characters are speaking in, in the, it's a di actual dialogue. And so Sarah's character is speaking in English or trying to speak in Spanish. And she's really cute and funny at times uh, with what she's trying to say. And Adriana is, she has more access to the English language than Sarah has to the Spanish language. Um, but it was hard to figure out how much access Adriana has, like actually has because we didn't want to lose a dramatic tension, but then we didn't want to uh, lose the reality of the fact that she probably speaks quite a bit of English just because of the place she works in and the fact that a lot of Mexicans do speak um, or have to speak uh, quite a bit of English because the world is what it is. Um, so that was kind of tricky. And we, we figured this out with the, um, the directors with um, Daniela and Chelsea as well, like how much access we wanted Adriana to have to the language so that we wouldn't lose the tension of wanting to communicate and being enabled to, especially with really intense situation like the one they're living, where it's kind of like a Sierra doesn't understand and then she's about to say something that's could be life-changing for, for Adriana and Adriana doesn't want that to happen and how do you stop her? So that one that one was hard as well. Um yeah those I think were, were the most difficult ones. And part of like the, the most difficult part of this whole thing was difficult, I guess, like tricky, uh, was the fact that it, it was a living play. It kept changing and the scenes were being developed as I was translating for a lot of the time. And then they would send me like, hey, how, how do you say this? And I'd be on the spot and everyone looking at me and like, like give me one minute. I'll, I'm just trying to think how you would translate this. Um, that was hard. Having to work, it felt like interpretation a, 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 quite a bit of the time because I would be like there would be five people staring at me, not like meanly, you know, but like there was like a, a time, a concern for, for time. And then it was just the one line I could have, like it should be easy, but it's not as easy as it sounds, um, especially when it's a play and you wanna do it justice. Um, 
so that happened a lot during the, the process of receiving emails and saying like, hey, how would you say this? And hey, we just added this line. Like, what do you think about this line? Um, and, and whole scenes changing um, because they were being developed at the time that I was translating. Um, I'd already translated the whole thing, but then I had to retranslate lots of chunks. Um, so that, that, was, that was tricky and fun. And our last question is, how do you write the voice for the Canadian <laughs> character? Yeah. We're curious about the Spanish accent for the English speaking role. How do you choose a dialect and where is their voice located? That was really hard. And it was an interesting story because we realized we made the wrong choice, um, but we had to make a choice at the beginning. Yeah, we did. Um, so we started off by, there was a, Uh, we had to have the Canadian character translate into Spanish because at some point a, a Mexican, I think, actor was going to read her lines in Spanish. So we needed to have the whole play in Spanish. Um, so what we did, what I thought would be a good idea was if this play is about white privilege and about her kind of blind spots because of privilege, then it might make sense to give her kind of like a privileged Spanish. So kind of like a fresa, just kind of like this preppy, preppy Mexico City kind of, and, and it's not even an accent, just like a choice in her slang, because of course, Sierra's characters speaks in this amazing slangy Canadian that's really relatable. And it felt like torture to me to turn her into this kind of neutral Spanish where you can't really use slang because if it's neutral, then you can't even yeah. swear properly. Um, <laughs> you can't, you can't, it's really sad. You can't uh, swear one, in neutral Spanish? Well, you can't, but it sounds like really like, Like, where is that from? Like, recorcholis. Yeah, like that kind yeah. of thing. Because, um, like, swear words are really, like, from the place they're from. So in any, any choice that you make that doesn't sound really artificial would be making a choice from a particular country or area. Like, it, it's really hard not to swear, like, a, a Mexican and then people not say, hey, that's Mexican. Yeah. Right? Like, it just, it just it would just happen. Um, so then we couldn't. It was like the choice of either turning Sarah into this kind of like more artificial character that's not as relatable as she actually is in English or try to make a choice as to what kind of Mexican uh, language she would use. So we, we picked, she speaks pretty like similarly to Adriana, but there is kind of this um, Mexico City kind of choices for a certain word. And what we found out at this focus group, we had a focus group where there were um, Latinx women and girls who watched the, I don't, I don't know if they watched the whole show. I wasn't there because it was over, um, like I was here and they were there. And so I, we, we didn't get um, times to, uh, to work. But I think they watched the whole show in Spanish. And then one of the things that they said really stood out to them in like a distracting way was that, that it felt too Mexican to be believable to the point of that it was really distracting. Um, and, it, and it makes sense, like, it yeah. makes sense that, of course, if you have this, the whole conflict is this clash of cultures, and then you have two people speaking Spanish, um, like they're native speakers, then of course it would feel, it feels weird to them um, to realize then that that doesn't really work. To be honest, the play works when it's in English and Spanish. That's like, it's like, Best, the best version of clean is when it, it has both languages, that's the whole point of it. But if we had to do that again, I would probably sacrifice some of uh, Sarah's slanginess and for the sake of clarity and turn her into a more, yeah, kind of like a more neutral Spanish speaker. So at least we can see the difference between her and, and Adriana. 
Um, but that, that was a that was a difficult choice to make at the beginning. And Christine and I thought it was a great idea. And then in the end, we, like we all thought it was a great idea. And it just felt weird. And it did. I, afterwards, I read it. And yeah, it felt it, there just was no dramatic tension um, from the language, you know? Um, we kind of killed that tension and it became a little confusing for, for people. Um, so now their voice, I guess Sarah's voice is located in a place of its kindness and privilege, which turns her a into a bit of an, an antagonist, even though she doesn't want to be. Um, so I guess that that would be like what I would try to keep in her voice is that kindness more than the relatability of her slangy Canadianness, um, her kindness and her her idea that whatever she sees in the world is exactly matches her own experience exactly when of course we know it doesn't. Um, so that's kind of like her defining characteristic more than the way that she speaks for the play to work. So I would try to respect that more than uh, whatever we felt language would work, the, the kind of language that would work. Uh, but I don't know if we're ever gonna do that again, maybe. We now we know better. <laughs> That's really interesting because it's like you can also play with status, but then you get into somewhere else with that because, like, then you go to like classismo mexicano extraño. Yeah. Exacto. Which is inherent. It's so part of everything. Yeah. And, and of course, it turns into a different story because the story is a Canadian and a Mexican, not two Mexicans, which is a different story. But of course, it doesn't work. Um, that's why a lot of the time I end up adapting a lot of shows um, that I'm giving because of the really, I, I told you guys this last time, but if they're really contemporary and people speak in like particular ways that are really like from today, it's really hard not to turn it into an adaptation because how do you, you can't really justify people saying like, wait, no sé este la chingada, no? When they're not from Mexico. Yeah. Um, sometimes you have to, and then you just like all like, rely on the audience's suspension of disbelief that okay this new yorker is saying way chingada because that's the only way we can have access to the play but a lot of the time it's better to adapt just because it sounds less jarring to the audience when okay so this is mexico and then that person is speaking like that because they're mexican it just depends on like the play and and for this play in particular that doesn't really we would have to adapt the whole play into mexico mexican context and then that would kill the whole purpose of the thing so yeah, we would lose some of Sarah's color <laughs> for the sake of, uh, of clarity. Yeah, or play with stereotypes, which is a lot of like, when you see somebody who doesn't speak Spanish, so it's like, hola, como estas? Oh, yeah. um, amigo. That might be a good idea. But then it's tricky because it's cartoonish. Yeah. It's tricky it's because so there's parts in where that would work for Sarah, where she's actually being ridiculous, but then there's other parts where it's like her story is really sad and really moving and you can't really do that to her as a character because then she turns into a cartoon. It's really hard. It's really, I don't have an answer. Um, <laughs> I talk about it anymore. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Okay, it was hard. Um, and I really like Sarah's character as well. So I felt, it felt really sad not being able to um, give her a voice that kind of felt similar to the one that she had in English. So yeah. I don't know what we would do next time. That's okay. That's why it. it's in process. Yeah. In March of 2021, the team in Vancouver had a workshop of the show in person, and Paula and a Luna Theater artist participated in over Zoom. At the end of the workshop, we recorded a candid conversation with co-director Chelsea Haverlin 
and Daniela Atiencia, and playwright Christine Quintana. We played some clips of this conversation for Paula to hear her reflections. First, we heard from Christine, the writer, then Chelsea, one of the co-directors, on their approaches to Spanish and English in the creation of Clean. My playwriting practice has always been focused on destabilizing audiences in that, like not ever, ever offering an easy answer to anything. Through the form of having a bilingual performance and having two very differently coded bodies on stage together, serving the audience two perspectives on one event, um, one of which is more accurate than the other by necessity, to try to get people to go, oh, you're not as smart as you think you are. You don't have things figured out as easily as a glance or hearing one sentence from somebody. And to entertain the idea that your biases color everything all the time and that that is something to wrestle with. I think that it is um, the responsibility of, of, for me, as a white person, of white people to take care of our own, like to like help other white people to listen and to be more open and to examine their own whiteness and to examine their own prejudice and to examine the way the white supremacy is working through them. And I think that for me, this piece was initially very intriguing because it felt like it didn't let white people off the hook, but it also didn't immediately skewer them. It really complicated that question in a way that is very difficult to do. Listening to the Spanish language and being immersed in Latinx culture has been an incredibly eye-opening experience for me as a, as a Canadian white person in terms of like really feeling like I have a better understanding of a different culture and language is such a big part of that. Yeah, that's one of the things I really like about this play. Um, I think as a, as a Spanish speaker and then a Spanish speaker who lived in Canada, like Spanish and English have always been pretty close to me as in English is my my second first language. I don't feel it's my second language, but it has been like it was as, as a child, um, kind of this feeling that he had to do better and be better um, at speaking English and, and trying to grab everything that you could to make your English better. And it's this constant thing where also like um, getting into Canada and like trying to figure out what my accent was because it was weird because I came from a, a, like a, a British immersion school, but it was kind of like Mexican British and then getting to Canada and people saying like, oh, you just learned English. I'm like, no, I'm speaking, I've been speaking it since I was four. And it was always this constant struggle, even for a speaker who feels incredibly comfortable and confident in English. It's always kind of this battle. And it's really interesting that this play puts the English speaker in that position. And there's this battle <clears throat> and this discomfort and this feeling that you're not enough um, as you're watching the play, which I think is pretty healthy sometimes for people to feel like, oh, okay, so I don't know everything and I'm not enough, not as a human being, but as in the things that I know and the things that I have access to, I need to work more. <clears throat> so I feel like that's one of the really, really interesting things um, that happened and, and clean was that. And um, <clears throat> I think also the, um, the, the workshop was kind of like that because everyone was either having to, and it's really hard to be like, do this thing where you're speaking English and then turn it back, switching into Spanish and this back and forth, even if you're really confident in both languages, <clears throat> it gets to be a little tricky. And so that was tricky for me as a Spanish and English speaker. And for the English speakers in, in the room, it was hard to get 
entire blocks of the conversation being inaccessible to them or partly accessible to them because not everyone there was like a lot of the time people would switch to Spanish and then just like be a little bit, I don't know. I don't know if it's insensitive, but just like not caring that other people in the room can understand that all the time. And I think that's healthy too. Um, Cause it happens to a lot of people being like feeling like you're out of the conversation because you don't speak English. Um, so I, I feel like that's really interesting and something that I feel theater should try to do, especially in countries where, because in Mexico, <clears throat> we don't deal with, um, with this clash between English and other languages, we have Spanish and then we have indigenous languages, which I think, yeah, no, I was gonna say the opposite, but I think we should be doing that in Spanish as well, in, in, in Mexico as well, where you're dealing with, yeah, Spanish as the universal language. And then you have all these other indigenous languages that people kind of like don't even care about when a huge amount of people here speak them. So I feel like that's something that theater can do really well and should start to be doing. <clears throat> um, is putting audiences in uncomfortable positions uh, using language as a tool. That's one of the reasons I felt Queen was incredibly interesting. There was this one point of the, um, of the workshop where they were figuring out the final scene, well, not the final, final scene, but one of the final scenes, the climax. And, um, and you have the two characters trying to communicate and they started using as, a, like as an experiment, uh, Google Translate during the workshop. And it was funny because it felt like half a rehearsal and half being in the scene because the actors were really struggling to get Google Translate to understand. And the tension in the room, like I couldn't tell how much of it was fiction and how much of it wasn't. It was so interesting. And I never thought that language could be so dramatic, just language itself, because they, they were struggling to get Google Translate to work and, uh, and having to navigate both, both languages, even as actors, not acting, just as actors having to like deal, Ale Lainfiesta, who's playing Adriana, having to deal with both English and Spanish going through her brain and then trying to get Google Translate to, to work and then trying to get the scene to work and, and trying to act. Um, it was incredibly tense and it felt like a really interesting tool for theater, um, for conflict and, and for theater and just putting audience, because I felt like an audience member at that point, feeling that struggle and realizing, wow, this is like the kind of frustration. I've never lived in a country where, where I don't speak uh, the language perfectly. Um, and I've never really traveled, I haven't traveled that much. So I've never been in a country where I don't speak the language. And that wasn't really like, I've been privileged in, in that sense because I do speak English and Spanish. And those are the two languages I've like I've had to use my whole life, but that scene put me through the experience and the frustration and uh, the challenges of not knowing how to communicate with someone and Google Translate failing. Um, so to me, even as an audience member, it put me in a, in a position I've never been in. So I think that's really interesting and true. During the workshop, the Clean Team invited a focus group of Latinx women to watch a presentation of the show. Here, we listen to Daniela, Chelsea, and Christine reflect on this experience. The day before, we had these women in the room. They're a, a focus group from Kilauea Neighborhood House, and there are these Latinx women who we put out a call to say, hey, we'd like to gather a few of you to talk about this play for you to tell us your responses to it and feedback. And since the beginning, from our first Zoom interaction with them. It's been really eye-opening to see how uh, excited they are to be involved in the process, 
how invested they are and how open-hearted they've been to listening and uh, having their say and, and responding in very intelligent and dramaturgical ways. So it's, it's been this beautiful melange of integrating non-theater folk with theater folk and it, it just has enriched our process beyond a place that I'd, I'd kind of forgotten was possible. And the, the most important thing about that, I think for me has been um, talking to everyone in the room the next day after having the, the group in and hearing from the Spanish speakers in the room what it meant to be in a room where Spanish was really the center of the conversation and just really acknowledging how, how rare that is in um, professional theater in Canada and in Vancouver and, and um, the importance of this piece, I think, for that audience. You know, as a second generation Mexican-American on one side writing a piece like this, I'm very aware of what my responsibilities are in terms of representation. And uh, to me, above all, like this audience of people from our community who live in our neighborhood who are Latinx immigrants, like they're the people I feel the most accountable to above all. It, it was an interesting moment for me because I find that our artistic dialogues tend to be extremely binary and um, to be in a room of people excited to embrace complexity um, and to be uh, represented in a complex way um, and that that was resonating and craved was really uh, tremendously affirming that we're on the right track. So that felt really good. I couldn't be at the focus group. So I kind of like never got a chance to see these women's reactions. Um, I would have been really interesting too, because um, yeah, I would have loved to hear what it felt or the, their experience of, of the Spanish in, in the play. Um, because it is, you do feel like really humbled and responsible for the fact that you're words, the words that you chose and, and picked and decided on are the ones that these um, Latinx people who may not have a lot of access to theater in their own language um, are, are, are listening, right, to. Um, they're, they're, the access they're having um, to theater in their own language is through your words, and that is really scary. Um, and there is a kind of like a feeling that you're representing. There's not enough theater, I feel, in, in Vancouver or in Canada that's for that specific audience. And so, of course, any play that you do feels like it's representing um, a community, even though it shouldn't. Like, nothing should represent a community, uh, especially not the one play. But, of course, if you have such few um, examples of the work, then it does feel like people feel like it should be representing them properly. Um, so that must, must have been terrifying for Christine as a playwright. I get terrified as a playwright, um, writing about specific things and then feeling like, am I doing it justice? Like, and 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 when it's for a community, especially in 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 a place where you're kind of struggling to find a place for uh, uh, Latinx or other other kind of communities, and and trying to find a, a room for them in, in the theater, um, that I feel like that would make you feel incredibly responsible. Um, and I didn't. I didn't really get this until Christine explained it to me, like the fact that, yeah, people feel really protective of any kind of Latinx um, representation because of course it, it's a reflection or it can be, or it can affect the way that they're viewed in, in a community where they're struggling to make room for themselves and to, um, and to feel comfortable in and to be um, accepted into and not only accepted into, but to be part of and, 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 a, and a 
part of the construction of that of that place. And so, of course, any kind of play about the Latinx people kind of has that responsibility on, on its shoulders. So for me, what I felt was um, more than anything, um, being true to the language of the area that I wasn't like, I'm, I'm not from Chetumal, I'm not from Yucatan. And that felt really, really scary to me. Um, so I did as much research as I could. And I feel like the play could work even further towards um, a more accurate re representation. But what I felt was the language was um, accessible enough that it's not only for the area, because of course you have lots of different Latinx people in Vancouver who are not even Mexican, right? So it kind of, it didn't, it couldn't be completely from Yucatan because then it makes it inaccessible for a bunch of other people. So we kind of had to strike a balance for, for the audiences that you get in that specific place. And I'd never really given thought to that because I've always written for people in Mexico City, not even outside of. Um, so it, it's not something you give a lot of thought to when you're writing in your own context, but when you're writing in the context of a, of a different country, um, I feel like you have to be so careful with how it's perceived if it's speaking about a particular community. Um, so yeah, the focus group was really, really interesting. And it's funny because I think Christine said to me that it found its audience, like those women were so happy to see the play and felt so connected to it. And I'm, I'm so glad that it, that it did, that it, that it um, traveled to them and it made them feel at home, even if uh, the, the Spanish translation of the Canadian character was not, um, was not the best for, for their experience. Um, but yeah, it was really, really interesting to see that they felt they felt interested in, in, in the piece and uh, and felt that, yeah, that the conflicts within the play were, were things that they could relate to, even if the, the, whole, the whole thing was perhaps not the kind of experience that they would have had. Um, so yeah, I think, and focus groups are really, they're, they're so scary to me as a playwright, because um, you, you kind of want to know what people think, but then you kind of don't want them to know if like some things, some parts don't work and you have to be really brave to, um, to be okay to hear that kind of thing. And then the play becomes stronger just through listening to other people and especially to the audience that it's supposed to um, reach or one of the audiences that it's supposed to, um, to reach and to feel true to them. So it, it was like um, <clears throat> La Prueba de Fuego, <laughs> having, those Latinx women and girls from different ages, age groups as well, um, react to it. Um, I wish I'd been at the focus group because I, I didn't get to hear a lot of the conversations that went on. Next, we heard from Daniela and Christine about conversations that happened in the workshop room that they want to remember. Giving Sarah Mexican flavor would allow you to retain some of Christine's poetry and the beauty of the language and to have liberty in, in translating that. But yeah, we're, we're faced with also not wanting the audience to be pulled out of that or confused by um, colloquial language that might feel jarring if they're hearing Sarah speaking in English, but they're reading um, words that will sound Mexican to people who are not from Mexico. So we're, we're finding, uh, trying to maybe find a happy medium between uh, not losing the poetry of what Christine has written and for Paula to still be able to feel like she's got that freedom, but find it within a more 
uh, neutral place so that it doesn't pull the audience out or confuses them. So there's no pure translation, like everything is interpretation, everything uh, is adaptation because then whatever I write gets filtered through even in English through Genevieve and how she interprets it and that we need and what I hope this piece is asking us to do with the density of the text, the complexity of listening to two languages is be like if we want to know each other we have to listen, we have to look at each other's bodies, we have to use our own biofeedback, which is the thing that we've been missing through this entire pandemic. Yeah, this, this whole reaction to, um, to the Mexican Sarah. A hunch I had right now, which is helpful, um, a lot of the time when like reading novels, uh, I remember reading novels as a kid where they would be, um, it would be written in English, but the character would be from a different place. And what they would do is use a few words, some of the time like papa or mija, or ventana, or things like that to make you feel like they're speaking in Spanish, even though they're not, the, the, the novel was in English. So maybe that's one way that we could try to translate the, the Sarah is to have her, like do the same that um, writers do in English for other languages is do the same for Spanish. So if, like we translate her words into Spanish and then have a few words in English throughout. And then we keep the, the feeling that she is Canadian even though she's speaking Spanish. Um, if it works in English, why shouldn't it work um, in, in Spanish? I think that's, like, that's a, a good idea that it just had. <laughs> reading through uh, Christine's and, and, and Daniela's responses. Um, but yeah, I think this whole thing comes down to the fact that we have to make peace with translation not being perfect and it's never gonna be entirely comfortable because we do, like as human beings, we like a lot of the times, but like having a black or white answer, we like straight answers and we like to know the truth about things. And, and, and we're like more and more realizing that there's never the one truth and there's never the one perspective. And you were never gonna have like the actual fact, even though you really, really wanted. Um, so I, I, translation is an exercise in, in that and not having the right answer, um, which should be an ex exercise for everything, I feel like just everything. Um, I'm, I'm working on a play right now and we're like it's already in, in previews and we're still finding things that we are not entirely happy with or things we're like oh did we make the right choice for that and like there's a point where you like you can't have all the right choices in front of you like every possibility and just like pick that one you, you did what you could with what you had at the moment and that's the play like that is the piece that you created who you were and where you were at the time that you created it and like all the other perfect ideas it could have been, like they're not even, they're not even important. Um, so yeah, I think theater, art, and, and translation in general are about coming to terms with the fact that you're never gonna have the right answer. And it's not about that. Um, and, and, and yeah, just making peace with that, even though it's super hard. Um, but I do feel like that kind of that idea might work for Sarah and try to it's also interesting that you can theater is live so you can change like one night you'll do one thing and then you can do a different thing for the following night and see what works. Um, so that could be one thing that, that we could try for, for clean is just see what works best for that character until we reach the best idea that we can reach at that time. Um, but yeah, Sarah remains an enigma to us all. <laughs> As Paula just mentioned, theater is live, and you can change things as it goes. Translation and adaptation are living art forms that continue to evolve. That's why it's important that we keep having this conversation. 
Thank you for listening. This has been the final episode of Season 5 of Radio Aluna Teatro. We'll be back in the fall with more conversations, artists, and art. See you then. We are speaking to you from the shores of this beautiful Zaga Igan, known to some as Lake Ontario, in Toronto, or Dagorondo. This is the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee, or Longhouse Confederacy, the Anishinaabek Nation, the Wendat, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum and Treaty 13, also known as the Toronto Purchase. At Aluna, we remember that people can begin to heal when they are hurt. We are committed to artful participation in disagreements. We are committed to unsettling ourselves towards connection, respect, and justice for all people who now live in this city, which has been a meeting place since time immemorial. Radio Aluna Teatro is produced by Aluna Theatre, with support from the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, the Metcalf Foundation, and TD Bank. Aluna Theatre is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Shellness with Sue Ballant. Radio Aluna Theater is produced by Monica Garrido and Camila Diaz Varela. For more about Aluna Theater, visit us at alunatheater.ca, follow at Aluna Theater on Twitter or Instagram, or like us on Facebook. Miigwech and Nyawangoa.